My topic is the fall of Islam. In March 19, 2012, in Toulouse, France, a 23-year-old French Algerian by the name of Mohamed Mera, he pulled up in his motor scooter in the Jewish Ozar Hatora Junior Senior High School. He dismounted and began immediately to open fire into the schoolyard. His barrage fell to 30-year-old rabbi and teacher just outside the school gates as he tried to shield his two young sons, aged six and three, from the gunman. Mara shot one of the boys as he crawled away from his father and brother lying dying on the pavement. And then Mara walked in the schoolyard, chasing people into the building. And once inside, he shot at staff, he shot at parents, and he shot at students. The killer then chased that little blonde girl, that little eight-year-old girl, into the courtyard. He grabbed her by her hair. He put the gun to her head, and he pulled the trigger. It jammed. Nothing happened. He threw the gun down. He picked up one of the many guns he was carrying and finished the job. He then hopped on his moped, and he drove off. Four people died in that shooting. It became the worst school-related attack in French history and became the biggest manhunt in French history. Mara, while he was doing all of this killing, filmed it with a camera he had strapped to his body. When he got home, he made a video of the killings, set it to music and verses in the Quran, and he uploaded it to Al Jazeera. Later, there was a long standoff with the police. He had a huge private arsenal, and he wanted to go out as a martyr. He jumped out the window, yelling, Allah Akbar, and shooting up at the police. The French authorities finally had to shoot him down. And when they researched it, they found that he had traveled to Afghanistan, he traveled to Pakistan, and he had been trained by al-Qaeda. 
And in the message that he left behind, he justified his murders by saying these acts are not only necessary, but they were to uphold the honor of Islam. Exhibit number two. On November 5, 2009, U.S. Army Major and Psychiatrist Nidal Malik Hassan entered his base in Fort Hood, Texas. He took his seat at an empty table. He bowed his head for several seconds in prayer. Then he stood up and shouted, Allahu Akbar, Allah is great. And he fired into the unarmed crowd of his own fellow soldiers. Within 10 minutes, he killed 13 people and wounded 29 others. A total of 214 rounds had been fired. And, you know, he was still carrying another 177 rounds until a civilian police officer shot him and paralyzed him. Now, Hassan was a Palestinian Muslim. He attended Falls Church, Virginia Mosque, where two of the 9-11 hijackers had gone. He had ties to Yemen-based cleric Enwar al-Awlaki, who, after shooting, al-Awlaki posted on the Internet that Hassan was a hero for fighting against the U.S. Army as is an Islamic duty. And as you know, Major Hassan has been in the news this week, and he's been convicted of all accounts. On September 11, 2001, Exhibit 3, 19 al-Qaeda hijacked four passenger jets, slamming two into the World Tower, one into the Pentagon, and one crashed in a field in Pennsylvania. 3,000 people died in the attack, including 227 civilians, and all 19 hijackers committed suicide on those four planes. The mastermind behind 9-11, you all know, Osama bin Laden, said this about it. To kill Americans and their allies, civilians and military, is an individual duty for every Muslim who can do it in any country in which it is possible. And so I ask you, why? What is it about Islam that hates us so much? Why are they trying to kill us? What turns normal people into raving murderers that say it's their duty to do it? And that, friends, is what we're going to cover right now. We need to get into the head of the Muslim. They're not just crazy people. There's a reason behind this thinking. There's a reason behind these killing. And there's a reason behind these deaths. Why indeed? All right, let's go into their belief. Remember, each time they claimed that Islam was what drove them to do these killings. So we have to understand Islam just a little bit. Now, Islam, when I say that word, it means submission. That's what the word Islam means. And to be a Muslim means one who submits. And we'll get into who they submit in just a moment. Now, folks will say, well, Islam is just a religion. It's just a religion. But it is not. A Muslim is taught that Islam is beyond religion. It is civil. It is cultural. It is military. It encompasses every aspect of your life. Islam is not just a religion. It is a lifestyle of its founding century, the 7th century, 600 A.D. So to be a Muslim means that you look towards the 600 A.D.s as your focal point for life, the ultimate, and how it should be. It was founded by this man, Muhammad. He was born in 570 A.D. to the powerful Arab Quraysh tribe that ruled Mecca in Arabia. He was raised by a grandfather and later an uncle after his parents died. He was a shepherd and he did camel care jobs, kind of our equivalent of flipping burgers. He was a a burger flipper of his time. He he took care of camels. But at 25, he met a 40-year-old widow. She was very wealthy and he married her and his, his job problems were over. And with Khadija, he had six children. 
After Khadija died, he ended up marrying a total of 15 women, one per year, and he would take them from the spoils of war, he would take first cousins, and he even took his own daughter-in-law, Zanab, away from his son-in-law, his son, excuse me. And at 54 years old, he took a little six-year-old girl by the name of Aisha to be his wife, which he consummated the marriage at nine years old. His nurse, Halima, as he was growing up, claimed that Muhammad had fits from jinns, which is where we get the term genie, spirits, evil spirits, and that he was tormented constantly by demons. At age 40, these torments were so intense, so crazy, that he went into a cave to commit suicide. But before he was about to kill himself, supposedly the angel Gabriel came down and gave him a message. And this is the message that Gabriel gave him. Gabriel said Mecca is too idolatrous. They worship 360 different idols, one for each lunar day. And they have worship all these around a meteor called the Kaaba. Now, Muhammad, your God, Allah, the moon God, which is represented by the crescent moon symbol, he is to be the only God worshipped in Mecca. So, what did Muhammad do? He listened to it. He went to Mecca and he said, I'm sorry, you can't worship these gods anymore. Only my God, Allah. Well, how do you think the people took it? They drove him out. They didn't like it very much. He ran to the local town called Medina, and that's actually the beginning of the Islamic calendar when he ran. It's called the Hijra. And he became a prophet in Medina. He kept sharing this message, and he made a living by pillaging the caravans that came by. Eventually, he got 10,000 men to join him. He went back to Mecca, and he went there to conquer it. He promised the men a plunder, and a fifth of the money was his, and he would pardon the people of their sins, and the people were promised that if they took Mecca, they would go to heaven and get many virgins with very large eyes. Once he got there, this is the impetus. This is the reasoning behind how he fought. The penalty for those who wage war against Allah and his messenger and strive upon the earth, corruption is none but those that be killed or crucified or their hands or feet be cut off from the opposite sides or they be exiled from the land. That is for them a disgrace in this world and for them in the hereafter is a great punishment. So when Muhammad went into Mecca, he said that, you join me or I chop your hands off or I kill you. What did the people do? They joined him. And that has been the driving force behind all evangelism in Islam to this day. Well, two years later, after a terrible battle, the, the daughter or, or daughter-in-law that he became his wife, she was tired of all her family members dying in his battle. So Zanab poisoned Muhammad. He spit the food out in time, but he took enough in, and along with pneumonia, it finally killed him. In 632 A.D., in Medina, Muhammad was buried. And you know what, folks? Muhammad is still there today. Let's talk about the Quran, their holy book. Ours is the Bible, theirs is the Quran. It's called the recitation. Now, Muhammad was illiterate. He couldn't write worth anything. So what he did is he'd get these, these possessions and he'd start doing automatic writing on bones and strips of linen, whatever he could find. And different men would surround him and, who could write and record what they said. And over the years, they put all this together into what's called the Quran. It's about as long as the New Testament. And it basically, there was many versions of it before it was finally compiled. And Muhammad would also take teachings from Moses and Jesus and, and Zoroaster, which was a Persian religion, and he'd put it together and formed the Quran over the years. But it's filled with historical errors. For instance, it said that Jesus was born of Mary, the sister of Moses. 
Bible drill time. Is that correct? Jesus didn't die on the cross. He's not the Son of God. Judas Iscariot replaced Jesus. How about this one? This is a good Bible drill one. Samaritans tricked the Israelites at the Exodus. True or false? Oh, you're all looking at me like you don't know. When did the Samaritans show up? Hundreds of years after the Exodus, so that's wrong. He also said that Alexander the Great was a Muslim, even though Alexander the Great was... 900 years before Muhammad was on the scene. He also had some very interesting teachings in the Quran. And ladies, I'm sorry if this offends you, but Muhammad wouldn't care. He doesn't mind offending you. Women are deficient in mind. A majority of the people in women and hell are women. Uh, women are a bad omen. I guess when you have 15 wives, gentlemen, it's a bad thing. It's a bad thing. He had some medical advice. If you drink camel urine, you'll be healthy. If you have a fly in your drink, it'll cure you. He said that fevers come from the heat of hell itself. And if you wanted to send a person to hell, all you had to do is talk badly about them. Gossiping worked. There's also a second book called the Hadith. It's the report. Basically what it is, it's 7,000 traditional sayings that Muhammad said. And it was compiled about 200 years after Muhammad died. And it helps people act just like Muhammad. So if they want to know what Muhammad believed or thought, they can go to the Hadith. So we have, what would Jesus do? They had, what would Muhammad do? Exactly. And you can go to the Hadith and know what Muhammad did. So if Muhammad said, you need some money, go raid a, a caravan, you can go raid a caravan. If you need to lie to advance your cause, well, that's okay. Muhammad says that too. If you need to take as many wives as you want, well, Muhammad said you can only have four wives. He gets 15. So, gentlemen, you're capped at four. And that's some of the teachings in the Hadith. Now, all this is based around Allah, the moon god that they worship. Now, folks, this is so important to understand because we have so many people in the media today telling us that Islam and Christianity worship the same god. Now, you tell me if this is the same god. The Allah is a Unitarian monotheism. Matter of fact, he's just one god. Is not a trinity, not the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to even say that God is a trinity is shirk, it's idolatry. He is distant and unknowable. He's unpredictable concerning salvation. There is no assurance of salvation. He reveals his will, but not his self. The relationship is master and slave, not father and son. He determines all. There is no free will in Islam. He created both good and evil. He's feared by his followers, and he has no love for his people. I will go as far to say, and I will stand on it, that who in the Bible does that type of description explain? It's Satan. So when anyone tells you that Muhammad is saying that God of the Bible and God of Islam is the same, is that true? Not at all. They're totally different. How about the belief system? They have five doctrines in Islam. God or Allah, which we talked about. There's angels in the Bible. Matter of fact, there's a hierarchy of angels, and each person is assigned an angel. You know, you always see in the cartoons, there's a good angel on one side and a bad angel on the other. That's from Islam. One is recording all the good stuff you do. The other is recording all the bad stuff you do. They have the holy books, of course. We talked about two of them. But they also consider the Torah of Moses, the Psalms of David, the Gospels of Jesus and the Quran is all holy books, but of course the Quran supersedes them. 
They have prophets. They have over 100,000 prophets. And they even include Adam and Noah and Jesus in that list. But they consider Muhammad the greatest of them all. And they also believe in a future judgment, in which we'll get that a little later. There are five pillars of Islam, they're called. To be a Muslim, you must do these five things. The first is called the creed or the shahada, to bear witness. And this is what a Muslim says when they, a person says when they accept Islam. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. So last night we were blessed to see five people give their lives and their hearts to the Lord. If it was Islam, they would have gone up and said the shahada. They also have prayers called the Salat five times a day, dawn, noon, afternoon, evening, and night. They pray kneeling face down towards Mecca, right. They have almsgiving, which is called zakat. One-twentieth of the income from a Muslim goes to benefit orphans and widows and build mosques. They also have a fast called the Psalm. And during Ramadan, which is the ninth month of their lunar year, that's where they abstain from all food and other things during the daylight hours. Of course, when nighttime comes, they can do what they want. And of course, the fifth is called the pilgrimage or the Hajj to Mecca. Every Muslim must go to Mecca and walk around. That's the meteor there, the Kaaba stone that they worship. And they walk around that, and if they're so infirmed, they can send a representative in their place. But people, if you're a Muslim, you must go to Mecca. And I would argue it's an unspoken pillar, but the sixth pillar, jihad, which is the struggle to survive, the will of Allah, the armed struggle for Islam against what they call infidels and apostates, unbelievers. Now, how does a Muslim view Christianity? Number one, they say that the Bible was corrupted by the Jews and Christians. So they're fine with the Bible. Matter of fact, Muhammad endorsed it in Surah 550. Surah is what they call chapter. So Surah 550 said you could read the Bible, but it's corrupted. And when you talk to Muslims, they always say that. Well, you're talking from the Bible, but that's, that's corrupted. But isn't the Bible say that it's the inspired word of God? This in history shows there's 5,300 copies of New Testament manuscripts, archaeological evidence, 86,000 references by early church fathers, Dead Sea Scrolls that say that the Bible we have today is not corrupted whatsoever. We said, of course, that God is one, that there's no trinity. And yet the Bible says that God is three in one, co-equal. He said that humanity and everything was created by a blood clot. But doesn't the Bible say that the dust and breath of God, we are made in his image? Man is taught that they are born good. So Islam denies that there's a sin nature whatsoever. Yet Romans 3.23 tells us that we are born in sin. They also believe in salvation through submissions and works. It is a works-based salvation. There is no faith and there is no grace in Islam. And of course, they believe in Jesus. Uh, they call him Isa al-Masih. They say he's sinless, even though Muhammad had to confess his sin. So there's a little argument there. So that's the view of when you talk to a Muslim and you say you're a Christian, that's, how, that's the lens that they see you in, the, the colored glasses. Well, let's look at Islam's goals. What are they trying to accomplish? And there are three. And I think I can sum it up best by what Sheikh Ibrahim Mudera said on May 13, 2005. We have ruled the world before, and by Allah, the day will come when we will rule the entire world again. The day will come when we will rule America. The day will come when we rule Britain. And the entire world, except for the Jews, the Jews will not enjoy a life of tranquility under our rule. The day will come when everything will be relieved of the Jews. Listen to the prophet Muhammad who tells you about the evil that waits the Jews, 
the stones and the trees will want the Muslims to finish off every Jew. This is coming out of the mosques around the world and here in America. That's the message that's being taught. So number one, world domination. Islam believes that Islam is only true religion. Good for them. We believe we're the only true religion too. But they believe they're only true religion. So militaristically, they must defeat the world for Islam. Folks, does that mean that Islam can be coexisted with? Does that mean Islam can be appeased? No. The basic teaching that Muhammad taught his people is that Islam must dominate the world for Allah, as Gabriel told him. And to do that, all infidels, all unbelievers, must be dead and, or put into submission. Sharia law, it means the pathway to be followed, or in real uh, translation, the path to the waterhole. It's the infallible word of God for Muslims. Sharia law is a basically a 7th century teaching. It's how people lived in Arabia in the 7th century. And it supersedes all laws of a nation. So when a Muslim comes in a nation, and we have this law that says, don't beat your wife, like, that's not a problem. The, the Quran says, I can't beat my wife, so I can't. So every law that is taught in the Quran, supersedes the laws. And that's why when Muslims come into nations, they don't integrate into their societies because their laws teach them that they must remain separate. It's a very difficult religion for women. Women are very confined. It has very strict penalties, as you see from the pictures here. If you commit adultery, you're stoned to death like that woman. The little boy there, that's a real picture, of course. Uh, he stole something, so his father there had a car run over his arm and break it. If you're fornication, you're stoned to death, you can beat your wife. If you commit apostasy, you must be killed. In other words, if you convert from Islam, a Muslim has every legal right to kill you. Why do not many people live Islam? It's a death sentence if they do. Number three, Islam believes that every Jew must be killed Israel and Jerusalem must be retaken. And there's three reasons why they hate the Jews so much and want Israel back. One, land for Allah. A portion of the Quran states that once a land has been conquered for Allah, it must remain an Islamic land. And the Arabs had conquered the land after the Crusaders in the Middle Ages. They drove them out. And now that Israel has that land again, it is an offense to Allah that the Jews hold that land. It must be retaken back. Does that mean that any peace process in the Middle East is going to work with Israel? No. If Israel gives more land away, will that bring peace? No. It's not in the Islamic playbook. They must take every scrap of land that Israel owns. To do this, they do this because it's a works-based salvation. They must redeem themselves for losing the land to Allah. And that's what the Muslim clerics teach. And number three. They have superiority over other religions. To take Israel is to take the foundation of three major religions, as they believe. And so to take Israel, to keep the Dome of the Rock up on the Temple Mount, is to declare to the entire world that they are the dominant religion. That's why the Dome of the Rock is up there. It's, the, it's a message. It's a flag that says, we control the world. We have the best religion. Now let's talk about the spread of Islam. And folks, let me tell you, this thing has spread like wildfire. There's three main divisions. You've got the Sunnis, 80% or so of the Sunnis. It means the trodden path or tradition. 
They want to live a life in the pattern of Muhammad. They want to elect leaders. Uh, they follow the Islamic code very well. There's, then there's the Shiites. Uh, they're a smaller group. They broke off because they felt that a descendant of Muhammad must be their leader. And so instead of an imam like the Sunnis, the Shiites believe that authority goes through Muhammad. And then the Sufis, which are the mystics, they believe God must be experienced. So you've got the Sunnis, which are like your, your conservatives. You've got your Shiites, which are your ultra-Orthodox conservatives. And then your Sufis, who are your, like your hippie liberals, if that helps you make it between the two. Now, look at that. Oh my goodness, the followers of Islam conquered. And it's easy to conquer when you walk into town with an army and say, we will kill you unless you convert. And as a matter of fact, they spread so fast that they were on the doorsteps of France in 732 AD in Vienna in 1529. Islam has constantly been trying to take Europe. Now I have a video that kind of shows how they're taking Europe today. And I think it will be really eye-opening for you to see what's going on in Europe countries today. to research. In order for a culture to maintain itself for more than 25 years, there must be a fertility rate of 2.11 children per family. With anything less, the culture will decline. Historically, no culture has ever reversed a 1.9 fertility rate. A rate of 1.3, impossible to reverse. Because it would take 80 to 100 years to correct itself and there is no economic model that can sustain a culture during that time. In other words, if two sets of parents each have one child, there are half as many children as parents. If those children have one child, then there are one-fourth as many grandchildren as grandparents. If only a million babies are born in 2006, it's hard to have two million adults enter the workforce in 2026. As the population shrinks, so does the culture. As of 2007, the fertility rate in France was 1.8, England 1.6, Greece 1.3, Germany 1.3, Italy 1.2, Spain 1.1. Across the entire European Union of 31 countries, the fertility is a mere 1.38. Historical research tells us these numbers are impossible to reverse. In a matter of years, Europe as we know it will cease to exist. Yet the population of Europe is not declining. Why? Immigration. Islamic immigration. Of all population growth in Europe since 1990, 90% has been Islamic immigration. France, 1.8 children per family. 
except Muslims. 8.1 In southern France, traditionally one of the most populated church regions in the world, there are now more mosques than churches. 30% of children ages 20 and younger are Islamic. In the larger cities such as Nice, Marseille and Paris, that number has grown to 45%. By 2027, one in five Frenchmen will be Muslim. In just 39 years, France will be an Islamic Republic. In the last 30 years, the Muslim population of Great Britain rose from 82,000 to 2.5 million, a 30-fold increase. There are over 1,000 mosques, many of them former churches. In the Netherlands, 50% of all newborns are Muslim. And in only 15 years, half of the population of the Netherlands will be Muslim. In Russia, there are over 23 million Muslims. That's one out of five Russians. 40% of the entire Russian army will be Islamic in just a few short years. Currently in Belgium, 25% of the population and 50% of all newborns are Muslim. The government of Belgium has stated one-third of all European children will be born to Muslim families by 2025, just 17 years away. The German government, the first to talk about this publicly, recently released a statement saying, the fall in the German population can no longer be stopped. Its downward spiral is no longer reversible. It will be a Muslim state by the year 2050. Muammar al-Qaddafi of Libya said, There are signs that Allah will grant victory to Islam in Europe without swords, without guns, without conquest. We don't need terrorists. We don't need homicide bombers. The 50-plus million Muslims in Europe will turn it into a Muslim continent within a few decades. There are currently 52 million Muslims in Europe. The German government said that number is expected to double in the next 20 years to 104 million. Closer to home, the numbers tell a similar story. Right now, Canada's fertility rate is 1.6, nearly a full point below what is required to sustain a culture. And Islam is now the fastest growing religion. Between 2001 and 2006, Canada's population increased by 1.6 million, 1.2 of those immigration. In the United States, the current fertility rate of American citizens is 1.6. With the influx of the Latino nations, the rate increases to 2.11, the bare minimum required to sustain a culture. In 1970, there were 100,000 Muslims in America. Today, there are over 9 million. The world is changing. It's time to wake up. Three years ago, a meeting of 24 Islamic organizations was held in Chicago. The transcripts of that meeting showed in detail their plans to evangelize America through journalism, politics, education, and more. They said, we must prepare ourselves for the reality that in 30 years, there will be 50 million Muslims living in America. The world that we live in 
is not the world in which our children and grandchildren will live. The Catholic Church recently reported that Islam has just surpassed their membership numbers. Some studies show that at Islam's current rate of growth, in five to seven years, it will be the dominant religion of the world. As believers, we call upon you to join the effort to share the gospel message with the changing world. This is a call to action. This video was so effective that the Catholic Church held a special meeting just to watch it and decide if they were losing the battle in Europe or not. It's got millions of views. You can check it out on YouTube. Now, how does Elam, how do they fight? What are their tactics? What do they do? Well, number one, we talked about a little jihad. There are 100 verses in the Quran that talk about jihad. Now, some people say, well, you know, the earlier verses, they're more peaceful, and that's the ones we follow. But Islam teaches that later verses abrogate or replace earlier versions. So in the beginning, Muhammad was trying to get Christians and Jews to join his side. They wouldn't. So then he had virulent hatred of Christians and Jews. So the later verses that talk about killing Jews and Christians are the ones that Islam is supposed to be followed and taught. Now, you could look at uh, Surah 9.5, for instance. Fight and slay the pagans wherever you find them and seize them and beleaguer them and lie in wait for them in every strategy. Or Surah 2, kill them wherever you find them. Drive out from whence they drove you out and persecution is severer than slaughter. If they do fight, you slay them. Such is the recompense of all unbelievers. Or Surah 9.29, fight those who believe not in Allah nor the last day, nor hold that forbidden which hath been forbidden by Allah and his prophet nor acknowledge the religion of truth of the people, the book, the Christians, until they pay the jizya, the tax, to be willing to be submitted. The Hadith also talks about the killing of the Jews. The last hour will not come unless the Muslim will fight against the Jews, and the Muslim would kill them until the Jews would hide themselves behind a stone or a tree, and a stone or the tree will say, Muslim, we're the servant of Allah. There is a Jew behind me. Come and kill him. What fuels that? It's the promise of paradise. The only assurance a Muslim is given that they will make it into paradise. When you meet meet unbelievers, smite their necks, and then when you have made wide slaughter among them, tie fast. And those who are slain in the way of God, he will not send their works astray. He will guide them and dispose their minds all right, and he will admit them to paradise, and he has made them known. They're also taught, never make a covenant or an agreement or a treaty with an infidel. Surah 489, they wish you would disbelieve as they disbelieve, so you would be alike. So do not take from among them allies until they emigrate to the cause of Allah. But if they turn away, then seize them and kill them wherever you find them, and take not from among them or their allies or helper. These folks are the marching orders of Islam. Number two, as we saw in that video, if you can't defeat them, Militarily, you defeat them by population. What great historical example do we have of that? The fall of Rome. They couldn't defeat Rome's army. So what did the Visigoths and the Vandals do up north? They just moved into Rome. Pretty soon they were the predominant people. And Rome fell. And with Islam, it's the same way. Brother Al says, I have a little extra time today. I usually don't show this video. But I think this video is great to show you once Islam gets a foot in the door, how do they eventually end up taking over the country? And what does that country look like once it's taken over?
If you live in the West and are concerned with Islam and the Islamization of your country, this video has a message for you. What Islam is Not was published in the frontpagemagazine.com on April 21, 2008 and is an adaptation from a book written by Dr. Peter Hammond, Slavery, Terrorism, and Islam. What Islam is Not Islam is not a religion, nor is it a cult. In its fullest form, it is a complete, total, 100% system of life. Islam has religious, legal, political, economic, social, and military components. The religious component is a beard for all of the other components. Islamization begins when there are sufficient Muslims in a country to agitate for their religious rights. When politically correct, tolerant, and culturally diverse societies agree to Muslim demands for their religious rights, some of the other components tend to creep in as well. Here's how it works. As long as the Muslim population remains around or under 2% in any given country, they will be, for the most part, regarded as a peace-loving minority and not as a threat to other citizens. This is the case in United States, Australia, Canada, China, Italy, and Norway. At 2 to 5%, they begin to convert from other ethnic minorities and disaffected groups, often with major recruiting from the jails and among street gangs. This is happening in Denmark, Germany, United Kingdom, Spain, and Thailand. From 5% on, they exercise an excessive influence in proportion to their percentage of the population. For example, they will push for the introduction of halal food, which is clean food by Islamic standards, thereby securing food preparation jobs for Muslims. They will increase pressure on supermarket chains to feature halal on their shelves, along with threats for failure to comply. This is occurring in France, Philippines, Sweden, Switzerland, the Netherlands, Trinidad and Tobago. At this point, they will work to get the ruling government to allow them to rule themselves within their ghettos under Sharia the Islamic law. The ultimate goal of the Islamists is to establish Sharia law over the entire world. When Muslims approach 10% of the population, they tend to increase lawlessness as a means of complaint about their conditions. In Paris, we are already seeing car burnings. Any non-Muslim action offends Islam and results in uprisings and threats such as in Amsterdam and in other western cities, with opposition to Muhammad cartoons and films exposing Islam. Such tensions are seen daily, particularly in Muslim sections in Guyana, India, Israel, Kenya, and Russia. After reaching 20%, nations can expect hair-trigger rioting, jihad militia formations, sporadic killings, and the burnings of Christian churches and Jewish synagogues, such as in Ethiopia.
At 40%, nations experience widespread massacres, chronic terror attacks, and ongoing militia warfare, such as in Bosnia, Chad, and Lebanon. From 60%, nations experience unfettered persecution of non-believers of all other religions, including non-conforming Muslims, sporadic ethnic cleansing, use of Sharia law as a weapon, and jizya, the tax placed on infidels, such as in Albania, Malaysia, Qatar, and Sudan. After 80%, expect daily intimidation and violent jihad, some state-run ethnic cleansing, and even some genocide, as these nations drive out the infidels and move toward 100% Muslim, such as has been experienced and in some ways is ongoing in Bangladesh, Egypt, Gaza, Indonesia, Iran, Iraq, Jordan, Morocco, Pakistan, Palestine, Syria, Tajikistan, Turkey, and United Arab Emirates. 100% will usher in peace of Dar al-Salam, the Islamic House of Peace. Here, there's supposed to be peace because everybody is a Muslim. The madrasas are the only schools and the Quran is the only word, such as in Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, Somalia, and Yemen. Unfortunately, peace is never achieved, as in these 100% states. The most radical Muslims intimidate and spew hatred and satisfy their bloodlust by killing less radical Muslims for a variety of reasons. A quote from the book The Hajj by Leon Uris. Before I was nine, I had learned the basic canon of Arab life. It was me against my brother. Me and my brother against our father. My family against my cousins and the clan. The clan against the tribe. The tribe against the world. And all of us against the infidel. It is important to understand that in some countries with well under 100% Muslim populations, such as France, the minority Muslim populations live in ghettos within which they are 100% Muslim and within which they live by Sharia law. The national police do not even enter these ghettos. There are no national courts, nor schools, nor non-Muslim religious facilities. In such situations, Muslims do not integrate into the community at large. The children attend madrasas. They learn only the Quran. To even associate with an infidel is a crime punishable by death. Therefore, in some areas of certain nations, Muslim imams and extremists exercise more power than the national average would indicate. Today's 1.5 billion Muslims make up 22% of the world's population, but their birth rates dwarf the birth rates of Christians, Hindus, Buddhists, and Jews, and all other believers. Muslims will exceed 50% of the world's population by the end of this century.
ways that Islam takes over the world. Jihad, immigration. We are seeing today in our own country an increasing violence. Bombers on our own land. People that are Americans converted to Islam and trained offshores. We are moving up the percentages. And there's no stopping it. Now, Islam has a particular end-time view. And I want to give, of course, credit to Dr. Reagan, who, it's crazy stuff. He researched it all and he put it together. And this is what Muslims believe about the end times. They believe a savior called the Mahdi is going to be coming during this time called the hour. And there will be signs that follow it, kind of interesting signs. Women will outnumber men 50 to 1. Men will eat with their tongues like cows. Time will contract. Wild beasts will speak. And the Euphrates River will uncover a mountain of gold. So when that happens, the Mahdi will come. Now, bear in mind, there are elements in Islam that were taken from other religions. And so we're going to hear some periodic things that are familiar to in the Bible. But don't forget, Islam is a made-up religion. Satan doesn't know how end time is going to turn out except from the Bible. So as you go through here, don't be concerned that all this is going to happen. They also have an antichrist, a Dajjal. And of course, he's a Jew. He's going to be born in Iran. He has one eye. He has the word infidel tattooed on his forehead. And he will lead a Jewish army. And this, folks, is when the Mahdi shows up. The 12th Iman. He's a kid that supposedly in the uh, centuries ago fell down a well. He comes back. He's a direct descendant of Muhammad. And he will lead them along with Jesus. And they believe that Jesus will return to the Mount of Olives, which he got from the Bible. He will defeat the Dajjal near Tel Aviv. He defeats the Gog and Magog invaders. He converts the world to Islam. Jesus does. He breaks all the crosses. Jesus kills all the pigs. And he marries. He has children. And then he dies. Now, the world during this time will have many natural disasters. Beasts will appear. Smoke will engulf the world. There will be landslides. The sun will begin rising from the west. And uh, fire will round up all the people in Syria, to throw that in. There's a resurrections. There's three. There's the trumpet of terror. There's a trumpet of swoon. And there's a trumpet of the resurrection, they call it. And that brings people to the day of reckoning. Now, for a Muslim, the day of reckoning is a purgatory. In other words... No matter what, if you're a Muslim, you know you're going to purgatory. You must suffer there, except unless you're the most devout who, who teach it. Allah judges you then based on the works that the two angels recorded on scales. And if you are found worthy, you cross the bridge. And those who are unfaithful will fall off the bridge into hell. But there's still some chances to be saved after that and be rescued from hell. They also have a view of paradise, Surah 4, 56 through 57. Those who are slain get promised 72 voluptuous virgins. But those who believe and do righteous deeds, we will admit them to the gardens beneath which rivers flow, wherein they abide forever. For them wherein are purified spouses, and we will admit them to the deepening shade. So there are seven parts to their paradise. It's not a heaven of spiritual delight and communion with God. Allah's off in the distant. You, you really don't get to talk to him. It's all physical. It's all sensual. And it's all sexual. And you've got to wonder why women would be interested in being a, a continual boy toy throughout the entire time, but that's what they do. Now, those who go to hell, Surah 4, 56 through 57 says, Indeed, those who disbelieve in our verses, the infidels, we will drive them into the fire, and every time their skins are roasted, though, we'll replace them with other skins so they may taste the punishment. Indeed, Allah be exalted, the mighty and wise. Now, hell for them also has seven levels. Did you know that there's a level of hell reserved for the Christian? We got our own place. 
there is a level of hell reserved for the Jews. And you know there's a level of hell reserved primarily for ladies. Sorry. Not many women are going to make it unless you're one of the virgins. Although 72 to 1 ratio, I'm not sure how that works. Unfortunately, hell is for women. By all indications, by all statistics, Islam will take over the world. This church would eventually become a mosque. Your children will eventually become Muslims or die. That is the direction the world is going right now. Or is it? I want to argue no. Praise the Lord. No, my children will not be forced into Islam that I know of for a few reasons. Islam has an end according to the Bible. Now, one of the things about Islam growing more and more powerful in the world, no matter how much Satan uses for evil, God turns to good. And one of the side effects of Islam becoming more powerful, it is regathering the Jews back into the nation of Israel. This is a fulfillment that God promised that the Jews would one day go back to their own land. Isaiah 11:12 and Micah 2:12. Ezekiel 28, 25, God says, I will show myself holy among them in the sight of the nation. God is using Islam to force the Jews back in their homeland. Now, all the world is focused on Israel right now. Geert Wilders, a local uh, Dutch lawmaker, said, If there had been no Israel, Islamic imperialism would have found other places to release its energy and its desire for conquest. Therefore... The war against Israel is not a war against Israel. It's a war against the West. It is jihad. Thanks to Israeli parents who see their children go off to the army and lie awake at night, parents in Europe and America can sleep well and have pleasant dreams, unaware of the dangers of looming. How dangerous is it for the current administration to gut Israel of its defensive capability? What will be the end result, according to Geert Wilders? The war will move out of it there and move here. Israel, folks, is keeping that at bay. Now, look at the Muslim nations. I put them in red. Uh, yellow is Russia. Russia has quickly become an Islamic nation. It plays a big part in end-time Bible prophecy. And I want to tell you there are three prophetic wars that the Bible gives that I believe will gut Islam as a religion in the end times. And the first one is this, the Psalm 83 war. It's a war where Israel will have to deal with its neighbors, Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Gaza, Jordan. This continuous status quo of Israel and their nations constantly getting in skirmishes cannot last much longer. Israel has to do something about it. And according to Psalm 83, if that does become prophecy I mean, and fulfilled, then Israel will control those nations. And this is what the Islamic map will look like. Let's go to the next war, Ezekiel 38 and 39. One of the longest discussed prophetic wars in the whole Bible. I love this war. I love reading about it. I, I just, please read it. Get in there in Ezekiel 38 and 39. It talks about Russia, Iran, Turkey, all those stands, Libya and other nations, an outer ring of Islamic nations coming against Israel. Israel seems undefeatable. It takes all those nations to try to destroy Israel. And what happens? The Bible says that God 
makes his appearance back on the earth. Not physically, but he annihilates those armies, these hordes, these uncountable armies that Israel has no chance of standing up against. He uses biblical-type things, fire and brimstone. The armies turn on each other. They're decimated. This entire Islamic army is utterly destroyed, and the world looks like that. We read during the tribulation, the seven-year time period where God pours out his wrath on the earth, and the Antichrist rules the earth, probably because Russia and the Middle East, there's a power vacuum. There's nothing there anymore. And it says the United States, the young lions, we interpret it that way, all sit out the war. So someone has to fill that power vacuum, and Europe is there to fill the power vacuum. And we read in the tribulation that there are four religions during the tribulation. We know there's Christianity and Judaism, because the Antichrist spends all his time persecuting. We know that there is a, a, what's called the harlot. She is a conglomeration of world religions that rides on the back of the Antichrist. And halfway through the tribulation, he gets rid of all competing, and he sets himself up to be worshipped. There is no mention of Islam during the tribulation. And folks, for a religion that's based on having to destroy your enemies for Allah's honor, and Allah loses every single war, big and bad, I think it's going to gut Islam before the tribulation begins. And then we get into the third conventional war. Revelation 6. The Antichrist, when he assumes power, begins annihilating a quarter of the world population. Now, if you can't have a competing religion with you, an ultimate religion, a religion like Islam that says there are no other religions, what do you do with it? You annihilate it. The biggest populations of Muslims in the world are in Indonesia and India and those other places that are outside. So, more than likely, the Antichrist is going to be spending his time annihilating Islam to set himself up as ruler. 1.5 billion people in our time period will die from this war. And the map will look like this. Folks, I really don't believe that Islam has much of a future left because the end time signs are pointing to the soon return of Jesus Christ. We could have a Psalm 83 war at any minute. The destruction of Damascus in Isaiah 17 could occur at any minute. The alliance of nations, the Gog-Magog alliance, already exists. Europe is so fragile, as Brother Al so wonderfully showed last night, that they're ready for a leader to take over. Everything is in place. And the big bad Islam of Satan's regime does not have much time left. Now, I want to admit one thing. I'm going to admit it right here. I'm a hater. I'm a card-carrying hater of Islam, which is a terrible thing nowadays. But you know why I hate Islam? I hate what it does to the people. It enslaves over a billion people to a religion that tells them that they must kill themselves I hate it that Satan rules it, and he gets away with it. I hate it at the Christians that they murder. Our ministry supports a gentleman by the name of Stan Fasoyen in Nigeria. He just reported this week, Muslims, Boko Haram, broke in with hatchets and machetes. They were chopping up the people. His son put his hand up to break, defend his head, and they chopped his hand off. This week, one of the own people in his own church, they took his children, and they wanted to throw them down a well where they threw other children, but they escaped, praise the Lord. This is what Islam does to a nation. It subjugates us. It puts us back in the dark ages. It sends people to hell by the billions. So yes, I hate Islam. I hate Satan. 
But you know, as Christians, we're called to hate evil and love good. And it's okay to be a hater of Islam because it kills people forever. But folks, it also presents the greatest opportunity for evangelism in world history. If you know how to evangelize the Muslim. One of the blessings of being web minister is I get to talk to people all over the world. I have people write in and through various venues, uh, social networks, you name it. Muslims seeking to understand God or try to convert me to Islam, which just opens a door for me to share with them. And I'm going to share with you six different ways that you can reach a Muslim for Christ. Number one, the Bible is okay to read. Surah 5, 50 and 68 says that Muhammad gave an okay thumbs up for a Muslim to read the Bible. If you give them the word of God, the Holy Spirit can speak through that. I'm going to give you a testimony from a real Muslim girl. Her name's Fars in Iran. She said, I left Islam for several reasons. Originally, because I was sent to my grandmother to a mullah to learn the Islamic prayer. I was taught this in Arabic, which is a Persian. I didn't understand one word of it. And when I asked this mullah what the heck it meant and what I was saying, he said it was important that I know, just I say it with all my heart. Well, say what with my heart? He then complained to my grandmother that I was too questioning for a girl and should be talked to. Well, whatever. I finally bought an English translation of the Quran, and I was appalled. No wonder the mullah didn't want me to know what it all meant. When I read some of the passages in English to my mother, she was shocked with disbelief. Can this be right? She couldn't believe it. She had been a Muslim all her life, and she never knew exactly what the Quran had said. She and my sister have both left Islam. That is the tragic legacy, especially in Iran, which is Islam forced on us by the Arabs. That is why educated college students are up in arms, because they're finally beginning to understand what Islam really means and says. And once she could read the Bible in English, she gave her life to Christ. It's okay for a Muslim to read the Bible and tell them that. How about witnessing the life of Christ? This is a testimony of a man named Ibn Zakaria from Morocco. He said, I left Islam because I didn't find peace with it. Since my childhood, I had a lot of questions in my mind about human rights and Islam, women's rights, eternal life, and about the life of Muhammad. I started looking for answers by reading the Bible and comparing the life of Muhammad to that of the Lord Jesus Christ. I found myself far from Islam and enlightened by the gospel and the truth of God's word. When you hold up the life of Muhammad, a killer, a murderer, a wife stealer, a child molester, a liar, and put it up with Jesus Christ, sinless, loving, holy, died for us. A Muslim is shocked. They can't believe it. The Jesus they were taught in the Quran isn't that Jesus at all. And of course, anyone's attracted to someone who lays their life down for them. Tell them what Jesus did for them. Number three, the love of God. This is Abdel Macy from Egypt. This is how he became saved. I was born in Egypt to a Muslim family. And I, I think in looking back that maybe my family was loving because it was liberal in its approach to Islam. It was loving not because of Islam, but in spite of it. When I began to study, I saw that the Quran was filled with very hate and not enough love. Christianity seems so much more familiar, and the Sermon on the Mount is a teaching after my own heart. There is nothing like it in Islamic literature. God is love. You know, Muslims don't know love whatsoever. Not from God. I mean, you see these mullahs on TV. They're angry. They're yelling all the time. It's a religion of hate. A Muslim 
like any person wants to know love, and you can reach him by telling him of the love of God. Number four, the assurance of salvation. Munif of Morocco writes, My father was and is still an imam in a mosque. I had many questions about my place in paradise, but there was no answer. They have no assurance of salvation except for one thing, and that is to die a martyr, to kill infidels in your own death. That's the only assurance they have of salvation. Why do you think, then, that people are willing to blow themselves up? That's the only way they can get into paradise. You can assure them through Jesus Christ that he died once and all for their sins, and they have assurance of heaven with their Father. Number five, grace. Sinbad of India said, I had, of course, gone through the whole process of learning about Islam, the do's and the don'ts. I've always tried to practice it, but was always struggling as I was forever carrying this great load on my back as if I was in prison. After I left, I felt like I'd just been released from prison. Folks, Islam is shackles on them. They feel it. They know it. But when you teach them about the grace of God, that there's nothing you can do to be saved, that God did it all, Jesus Christ did it on the cross, they feel relieved. Maybe you look back to the times when you got saved, you felt that weight lift off of you. A Muslim is looking for that weight to be lifted off of them. And finally, number six, a relationship with God. This is what Cynthia, an American, said. My fear of Allah became so intense that I hope to get cancer and therefore be punished for my sins on earth instead of the death. I would scrub and cleanse my body in prayer so obsessively that my hands became cracked and bloody. Still, I continue to believe in a religion that on the outside looks so moral and just. Then I did something that I told my parents and myself I'd never do. I rented the movie The Passion of the Christ. I held back tears that threatened to fall from my eyes until the short scene in the movie when Mary Magdalene reverts back to the day when Jesus was the only person who would accept her and love her. I began to cry as I suddenly realized that my mother had been trying to tell me all these years. Finally, I understood that God loved me and was not out to get me or to do me harm. It was also at that moment that I knew that Allah was not God. I felt the love and the protection of God all around me. I was no longer scared to live and no longer scared to die. The world looked so beautiful and I couldn't stop thanking God for saving me. It has only been two weeks since I was saved by Jesus Christ, and they've been the happiest two weeks of my life. Every day that I wake up, I am so grateful that God never left my side during my seven-year hiatus. I feel like he was patiently waiting for my return. I now live my life with inner peace and a love of God that I cannot put into words. Thank you, Jesus, for never leaving me. That is one of the best ways to reach a Muslim for Christ. A relationship with God. Not some distant, unknowable being who could care less about them and wants their death to prove their faith, but a God who loves them and cares for them. The very Jesus you accepted. Folks, there's a lot to fear with Islam. It's a big problem right now. Our country is facing it. Our government supports it. In fear of it, They've not only become supporters, but they've become collaborators. They are allowing Islam to take over our nation. Where there's a lack of faith, where there's a lack of morals, there's a decline in population. It's God's way of weeding out the stupid, I like to think. And God is weeding us out and replacing with Islam until a point. 
The Bible gives us hope that Islam will fail. Jesus Christ is coming soon. He will defeat Islam. He will defeat Satan. And I think during the tribulation, when you read about the multitudes that have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, I bet many of them are former Muslims, finally released from Islam's hold. So go out and share the gospel with Muslims. Don't be scared of them. Don't be scared. They are seeking, like so many other people, freedom of that birth.